John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, hello, John. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. It looks like uh, you and I are flying uh, together without Todd today. Um, but uh, I think we have a pretty interesting accident that's going to open up a discussion um, regarding charter operations, both legal and illegal. Um, the illegal ones are commonly referred to as the 134 and a half flights instead of 14 CFR part 135. But this particular accident we're talking about today um, involves a Lear 35A that happened back in 2017. So it's a relatively recent accident. Um, it was a uh, it was a charter operator who had um, multiple legs. They had dropped passengers um, at Philadelphia from Hanscom or um, Bedford, Massachusetts. Stopped in Philadelphia, we're repositioning down to uh, Teterboro, and it was a three-day trip. But when you start reading not only the history of flight that the board wrote and the communication between the two pilots, not only in the cockpit, because they did have a cockpit voice recorder, but just the communications with, uh, with the controlling facilities, it, uh, it starts to paint a, a picture of a comedy of errors. And, and I don't say that lightly um, because when you look at the discussion that was taking place uh, between the captain and the first officer, the uh, co-pilot, it, it's, it's ridiculous because you have a, a 7,000 hour captain with about 350 hours in the Lear 35. He had just recently upgraded about six, seven months prior to the accident um, but as the board dissected his background, found that he didn't have a lot of command authority type training, leadership or CLR type training. And we know that crew resource management, um, has always been a big thing, not only with, uh, with the major 121 carriers, but also, um, all the way even down to just general aviation pilots flying 91, but particularly 135 operators. And then you had a, a co-pilot who only had about 1,100 plus hours total time and didn't have much in the Lear. And on the, on the flight from Philadelphia down to Teterboro, because they were, uh, they were repositioning or it was a deadhead flight, 
the captain allowed the first officer to fly the airplane or the co-pilot to fly the airplane. However, that in and of itself was against company policy. And so throughout, riddled throughout this report are a number of uh, issues where and and uh, points and moments during this flight where either one or both pilots failed to not only comply with SOPs, company SOPs, but you can see where some of the federal aviation regulations were breached. And they they just, it was just ridiculous reading through this to see how these guys tried to salvage a bad situation without uh, the board really didn't explore why they were trying to to do what they were doing uh, rather than just execute a missed approach. But uh, we'll get into into those particulars. But there's always a motivation, John, when you're flying for hire and and of course, even on the deadhead legs and repositioning, because you gotta you're you're trying to meet time schedules. You're trying to have airplanes in the in the proper position that is location. And um, and this one just struck me not only when it first happened, but I've used this a number of times to talk about safety and and trying to salvage bad situations and making bad in-flight decisions and failing to follow SOPs, which we talk about on this show quite a bit. You know, as I go through it, and I do remember this crash because I was working at Hanscom at this time. And uh, after the accident, I remember that uh, we were looking through to see if we had handled this airplane uh, uh, earlier in that day because it was at Hanscom. And I don't remember if we did or not. I believe we did not, but I could be mistaken on that. But in any event, uh, he's come through. And, you know, after every show, I talk about pre-flight planning, planning for your flights. And uh, you do it at home, and then you do it again when you get to the airport. And uh, these guys, their weather information wasn't up to date. Uh, I mean, it, it just there's a there's a whole host of of small little errors that, when viewed as one error, really are not significant. But when you look at the the whole this entire day's flying and the number of mistakes that were made. Uh, it just shows you this crew was not uh, not doing a very good job of flying that day, even though they. Had, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead, John. Even though they had a lot of hours flying, uh, they weren't flying from the cockpit. You know the old saying: "You're flying from the last row of seats." <laughs> yeah. Well, in this particular instance, this is one of those short flights. It was only about 30 minutes long. You're up and down. You're just repositioning Philadelphia down to uh, to Teterboro, uh, <clears throat> or I should say up to Teterboro. And so, you know, one of the things that happens is that timetable gets compressed. And when it gets compressed, you got a lot of things going on. So it's all about workload management. So now you have a captain who is trying to coach this co-pilot who doesn't have a lot of experience, even though he's passed a check ride and he's an SIC only in this airplane, he's literally trying to talk him through everything that he needs to be doing. He's trying to hand fly the airplane and integrate use of, you know, some functionality of the autopilot. And when you, when you read the history of flight and you read the transcript of the cockpit voice recorder, 
you can see that this co-pilot is so far behind. He is not even in the airplane. Um, and, and the captain has diverted his attention from running checklist and really paying attention to the monitoring function and situational awareness that he should have had um, because he's having to talk to this co-pilot all the time. Then on top of it, they're going to try and do an approach that even the most seasoned pilot going into Teterboro, um, it finds challenging. And that is executing an ILS to runway six with a circle to land to runway one, because you're now flying the approach to a point in space and you have to be dead nuts on the, uh, on the approach and on these waypoints and or on these visual cues, depending on the size of the airplane so that you can actually start the turn now off the ILS and then maneuver at low altitude. Usually it's, you know, a thousand feet or below, and you're now circling to runway one. You've got to get that airplane lined up and stabilized so you can land. And this is one of those accidents where they were so far behind. And when they did, uh, the co-pilot was trying to shoot the ILS approach, captain's talking him through it. And ATC actually cues him going, hey, guy, you know, you're getting close. When are you going to start your turn to the right? Because you have to bail off the approach to the right. And then once you get uh, get lined up on runway one, you got to come back to the left. And they they got close, too close. Um, they shot the approach. They were 2.8 miles inside the final approach fix, which puts them about a mile off the end of the runway for runway six. That is just too close to the airport to try and maneuver at the speeds they were flying and get the airplane, you know, back lined up for a stabilized approach and landing on, on runway one. And in fact, um, the, uh, the co-pilot gave up, literally gave up in the middle of uh, flying this particular uh, circle part of the approach, even though the captain was talking and talking him through it. He, uh, he said, it's your airplane. You got it. Well, it was a bad time to be handing off the airplane, but the captain took it. And rather than do the prudent thing and realize that, hey, this isn't going to work and just go missed or, or do a go around, he tried to salvage that bad situation. You know, it's typical for, for those New York City airports, not LaGuardia and Kennedy, but Teterboro and uh, even White Plains because of the traffic conditions nobody wants to do around go around anywhere because boy you can they can send you out a long way before you come back yeah and we've seen accidents and i know that you were with the board when we had these accidents but there's been a number of accidents where you know pilots going into uh, to teeterboro you know you're on a dive and drive they keep you high and then they slam dunky into the airport and like you said <clears throat> They don't like, you know, pilots don't like to go around or go missed because just trying to get back into the queue can take a long time. And, um, and, and you know, it, it sets off a whole chain of events. But here you got a captain who, rather than do the prudent thing, um, tries to salvage the bad situation, cranks the airplane up better than 30 degrees of bank as he's trying to intercept the final and of course uh stalled the airplane and it was captured on video there was uh some surveillance video that actually showed the airplane in a uh wings 90 degree vertical um steep nose low attitude as it crashed into a parking lot and 
you know, you start looking at this. This is a 135 operation, John. This is a, an organization that is supposed to meet a certain uh, standard by the FAA. But what the board found is not only were these pilots substandard and not, not following uh, SOPs, but the company was substandard in their monitoring and oversight programs for these pilots. Because as the board wrote, if this flight had been completed successfully, even with this comedy of errors and, and all of the deficiencies in the pilot performance, if this had been a successful flight, how would the company have ever known how bad these two were? Um, they wouldn't. And so this accident points out the deficiencies in a program, or at least in an organization where if you don't have a good oversight program and you're not monitoring either through flight data monitoring or other sources, then you don't know how bad things are in the cockpit and what these guys are actually doing. You know, flight data monitoring is not as good as a quick access recorder. And this airplane didn't have a recorder, but that's really where the focus needs to be. We need to have on all the turbine powered airplanes, a flight data recorder with a quick access uh, system installed, QAR, as it's called, so that you can download, a company can download periodically what's been going on in the cockpit, what's been landing. You know, we, we, but on the commercial airplane side, very early on with the QARs in the air, in an airplane, we discovered that pilots were following procedures, requests for altitude and, and uh, approach, approaches by commercial airplanes into San Francisco, which were deemed to be very hazardous. And pilots were complying with those requests from air traffic control because air traffic control's business is keeping the airplanes moving and getting as many in and out as they possibly can within their rules, their parameters. And uh, because we had quick access recorders, the industry was able to determine that those events in, in San Francisco were not good and the pilots started to refuse them and the air traffic control changed their procedures. Well, that's all well and good, but you got to have that recorder on the airplane first. And yeah. we have an awful lot of airplanes, I mean a tremendous number of airplanes out there that do not have flight data recorders, and this is just one of them. And when you look at some of the other things that the board found during the course of their investigation, um, not only are these guys not following SOPs, uh, some of the training is suspect. And then on top of it, and I think this is the biggest one that the board found, was the fact that the FAA wasn't doing any kind of operational checks. They weren't doing any in-route checks. They weren't doing any kind of observation flights to see what was going on in line operations. So now, not only do you have a, a company that doesn't know what's going on, but now you have the FAA, the regulator, the overseer, if you will, who doesn't know what's going on because they aren't doing or performing um, their requisite uh, tasks to ensure the highest levels of safety for a charter operator. Yeah, I mean, the FAA's got a, an, an awfully big job and they can't be everywhere at the same time. And you've got operators that can bob and weave uh, to make that job even more difficult. I mean, I heard stories, I've heard stories repeatedly about uh, places, remote remote airfields, uh, 
where the word would be out that the FAA was coming and everybody would fly their airplane someplace else. Hmm. So, yeah. Well, and, and, you know, we've both been around long enough to know that um, geographic surveillance, um, even with the big carriers was always a topic of discussion um, because you could get a, a, an inspector who gets on an airplane in California on an airline who's based in uh, in you know New York, and they get out and they start finding all these deficiencies that they think are contrary to to good operating practice or or the standards that they believe um, are necessary, only to find out that no, those are all approved procedures by the certifying uh, or the certificate holding office, and so there's always been this battle about geographic surveillance, and then on top of it resources, manpower. Do we have enough inspectors to be doing what they need to be doing? Are they doing a 10% quality control check because they don't have enough people to be in the cockpits of all these aircraft? And and that leads me into this discussion that I'm going to throw to you, John, and that is now we have this big issue of illegal charters or the 134 and a half flights where um, there is money to be made um, but these kinds of operators are operating on a shoestring to increase their their profit margin on every one of these flights. So now there is no oversight um, because they aren't an illegal or recognized um, certificate holder. The FAA a lot of times doesn't even know that these things are going on until it's reported. And now, um, because we've seen accidents and incidents uh, traced back to illegal charters, and, and the definition of an illegal charter has gotten very, very narrow as far as what the FAA says you can and cannot do um, that constitutes a charter. Um, I remember the Oklahoma City uh, or the Oklahoma State basketball team and a King Air accident out here in Colorado where an alumni donated the airplane to move uh, some team uh, members and the coaches um, to a game here in Colorado. And on the way back, the airplane crashed. And um, it was an unfortunate accident. Everybody was killed. But what one of the things that uh, was found by the FAA was the fact that it could have been constituted as a 134 and a half or an illegal charter. And the reason for it was, even though it was a donated airplane and the flight crew was employees or were employees of, of the owner of the aircraft, they had received a form of compensation by getting uh, uh, tickets to the basketball game and the and the fa looked at that as a form of compensation and so all of a sudden now that window is very very small so you have a lot of these guys out there that want to quote share expenses and do these things but if you're not careful i mean flying your 172 uh could constitute an illegal charter oh it certainly could and has you know people don't realize especially people chartering the airplanes on the on the uh, more inexpensive side. I'm not talking about people that are chartering the G5, although it does happen at, at that level. It also happens all the way down to political candidates, for example, that charter these single and twin engine, light twin engine airplanes to fly them around their state to campaign. And it's, you have no way of knowing if this is a, a real 135 unless you vet them out beforehand. Yes. But the differences between just Harry having an airplane in a 135 operation, which is the bare minimum in commercial, 
is the training for the pilots, the oversight for the pilots, the duty day for the pilots, the list goes on and on. That drives up the cost. Yes. And the cost difference is what drives these people with that own an airplane. They want to sneak in under and do a 134 and a half charter uh, to make that money because the money is very attractive. But it's all it's very expensive for 135 operators to maintain their flight crews current. And, and also uh, the FAA wants to ride with them uh, periodically to make sure that they're following procedures and all the rest. As a charter company that I worked for and the airplanes that, that uh, passing carrier airplanes that we had, I would fly on the airplane sometimes, even when it had passengers in the back and I was in the back, but I wa would position myself in a way that I could watch the flight crew's performance. Right. And just based not you know, I wasn't watching how they fly the airplane. I was watching how they went through our procedures, following our standard operating procedures. And uh, I always would find problems with them because we they get into a groove flying the airplane the way they want to. And yeah. remind them all the time that that's not I'm not procedures. We don't do it that way. So it, it takes a lot to be a a uh, real I call it a real bona fide one thirty five. One that's behaving the way the FAA expects them to behave. Many, many, many don't. And sometimes it's, it's uh, you know, the companies are, are busy managing their company and they don't have time to ride with, with the pilots. That's why I said what I said earlier about having a good uh, flight data recorder with quick access acceptability, accessibility, so that one can uh, download the events that have occurred, you know, a day, a week, a month earlier. And you can plot them out and see if just what kind of actions were taken. And then you can go back and see what, who was flying it. So and, all of and, that is what's needed and done in many 135 operators. And and you brought up a good point. And, and one of the things, and I think we dissected the, this accident on our show um, that killed Senator Wellstone and, uh, and his family, um, that charter operator up in Minnesota, um, they had a crew pairing issue. They had the two worst pilots you could put together in the company, in the cockpit. And unfortunately, it led to a catastrophic fatal accident. And this accident we talked about with this Learjet appears to be a crew pairing issue where this captain, while yes, he has 7,000 hours and 350 in the airplane and that kind of stuff, if you really start to dissect it the way the board presented it, um, did he really have that command leadership training and authority and really know how to coach a very green uh, co-pilot, especially um, on a complex type approach like this? They're hand flying the airplane. They're trying to do a circle to land, which is really challenging for even the most experienced pilot. And and it just it just came unglued. And rather than do the prudent thing, and that is, let's let's get out of here. Let's try this again. They tried to make something happen. And unfortunately, it was the worst thing they could have made happen. And, and we talk about the deficiencies in this accident with a certificated charter company. And now you have the 134s and a half that have zero oversight. The FAA doesn't know what's going on. The company doesn't care what's going on as long as you make things happen. Get me to, you know, the client from point A to point B. And you know, what happens, happens. And I don't care how you make it happen. Just make it happen. You and I remember Dick Ebersol's accident 
that again was uh, was a certificated carrier, but they were operating on margins that were very, very small. And you have a flight crew who really didn't understand and uh, made some bad aeronautical decisions, including the fact that they didn't de-ice the airplane, even though it was snowing like crazy in Montrose, Colorado on that day. And they had all sorts of snow and slush on that airplane. And again, bad things happen when you're trying to you know, use the bottom line um, as your gouge for whether or not you make a decision. Yeah, I was really surprised that in the NTSB's uh, recommendations this they didn't they didn't touch upon a, a flight data recorder. They touch upon the soft skills stuff like uh, uh, crew resource management and revising the manual for your speeds, approach speeds with additives for for uh, high risk things that happen when you're doing things like this flight crew did to increase the speed so you don't stall the airplane. But I was surprised that, that the flight data recorder wasn't on there, at least be, at least to restate it, because we stated that even way back when I first started the NTSB. That, yeah. that was a hard issue to get recorders on these airplanes, and it was like pulling teeth to get uh, voice recorders installed on them. Uh, th these airplanes that are made today by Bombardier and, and uh, Gulfstream and the rest, they all need to have flight data recorders in the beginning with not not an option you know it's just it's part of the equipment the airplane is certified with and you, you know the, the the other thing is is that a lot of these you know jets and single engine turboprops the advanced single engine turboprops um you know we really need to have as much flight data uh captured as as we can especially when you're flying single pilot because a cockpit voice recorder doesn't do us any good because a lot of these pilots um, are doing silent checklists. There are guys that do read the checklist out loud. So, okay, you capture that. And I worked an accident involving a citation jet where the uh, the pilot was relatively new and he was reading the checklists as uh, as he was performing them and he was reading them out loud. So it got captured on the uh, on the cockpit voice recorder. But that's probably an exception, not the rule. And so if you're going to have these single pilot operations, especially charter operations, uh, we need that kind of information as investigators, because, again, if you have a high energy impact where the aircraft is totally destroyed, similar to the citation that just recently crashed um, after it overflew uh, New York and turned around <laughs> and uh, crashed down in Virginia, um, we really need to have robust data to try and figure out. We know what the performance of that aircraft was. We don't know why the pilot wasn't responsive. Cockpit voice recorder may or may not tell us that, but at least if we can reconstruct with a lot of accuracy a flight path based on flight data, that'll help us um, immensely. Whether it's a 134 and a half or a 135, it doesn't matter, or even just a part 91 business jet uh, being operated by a company. Um, we have a lot of a, a lot of issues right now with trying to reconstruct um, accidents because we don't have, in a lot of cases, enough uh, data from the aircraft. Yeah. When I, you know, as we've been doing these podcasts for the last few years, I uh, have come to realize how fortunate I was that I worked for the, the uh, charter company that I did 
because boy, he would not fly airplanes with a single pilot. Period. And he had we had airplanes that was certified for single pilot operation. Absolutely refused to do it. He 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 bit the bullet and spent the extra money. Uh, you know, he's very risk of foot uh, adverse for an owner of a charter company. Very yeah. impressive. I got, I've come to really be impressed with the operation that, that they were running at the time. Well, I I would encourage folks, especially professional pilots or those pilots who want to be professional pilots, to uh, to read this report, not just the abstract, because the abstract doesn't really get into the good detail, but actually pull down the report on this particular accident. It happened um, May of 2017. It's identified as NTSB double R or double AR one nine slash zero two. It's it involves the Learjet at Teterboro. It's a good read. They actually the board actually did a very good job in dissecting and, and filtering and, and developing a lot of information. There are a couple of things that I would see or at least want to see, like you were talking about, John the development of additional information for recommendations. But overall, this is a good read because again, with what's going on in the pilot hiring uh, issues that we have today, where we're gonna have a lot of, I mean, they may be qualified, but they don't have a lot of operational experience and operational discipline. This kind of accident could happen again. And now you don't wanna have a very experienced captain flying with a very, very green co-pilot who really doesn't understand, doesn't know, shouldn't be there kind of thing. Um, and you're having to spend all your time coaching them because now that just is basically, you know, the left seat pilot flying single pilot IFR with a distraction in the right seat. And it is in, it, it, this is a great accident to really understand that and see if we can't develop, even if it's just personal minimums or, uh, you know, some sort of personal checklist that if you're flying with a new, relatively inexperienced pilot, um, you know, you, you get to know them before you actually get into a firefight in an airplane. Yes. Good advice. Good advice. Well, since we don't have Todd here for the second to the last word, I will leave it to you to close the show with our last words. All right, and in this accident that we just talked about, perfect example about poor pre-planning, among other things. But if you're going to go flying today, right, do a good session of pre-planning before you get to the airport and do it again when you get to the airport and make sure you have the latest weather, because these guys didn't. And when you get out to your airplane, do a very thorough pre-flight. And if it's the airplane's not a big airplane, uh, touch it. Move your flight controls by hand outside the airplane. Learn to what to look what to look for in your airplane. And if you have any questions, get a mechanic that that uh, works on the airplane and let him tell you about uh, what he does for a walk around. So you can do the same thing. And after you get flying, please, please put your head on a swivel. So many accidents today, so many student pilots, especially. We have so many in the air today, uh, student pilots, and uh, the accident rate. And we're going to have a, a program about it, Greg. Right? Yeah. You know, probably right after Oshkosh when we have a chance to uh, talk to a number of the 
instructors that are members of NAFI, the National Association of Flight Instructors, that both of us are members of. And uh, we'll probably have a, a one or two shows on them. And it's a good point to remind anybody that's a student, if you're renting airplanes, make sure you get insurance. It's not that expensive. Todd can tell you. Todd has the insurance himself. He's refreshing his license that he's had for over 30 years. But you got to have that head on a swivel when you take off because there's just so much activity out there. And a lot of it is with low time pilots. And please, please fly safely. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that. And we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.